The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. We're on to 1 Thessalonians 5. You ready for it? 1 Thessalonians 5. Hasn't this been a great journey through this book, Building What Lasts? We've been in it for many months, and now we're in the last chapter. Some of you are like, maybe, oh, I've really enjoyed this book. Others of you, maybe, hopefully you're not in this part, but you're like, I'm ready to be done with First Thessalonians. Anybody there? No? You like it? Okay, that's good. I'm ready for it too. We've got another three weeks here, this uh, paragraph, next week, the next paragraph, and then uh, the week after that, the final section of this book. And so as you wonder, like, well, how do we pick the text? Here's just a way so you know the structure, and as maybe you prepare, or you want to read ahead, is that's basically how we uh, structure our messages. As we speak, Uh, preach in an expositional way. We draw out the meaning of the text. It's usually a, uh, it's verse by verse, but it's a section or a paragraph at a time where there is one unifying thought that the writer had for that group of people and subsequently then for us. And so that's how we break it down. If you're ever wondering like, I wonder what what Blair does, how he, why he chooses the way he chooses it. There you go. So we're in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 11. A couple weeks ago, um, I was driving right out here on uh, Creekside Crossing, you know, right there by Bucky's, headed towards I-35, and there standing in the median was a woman with a sign in front of her face. I, I, I kind of looked in my rearview mirror, and I saw she had a ponytail, so I'm pretty sure it was a woman, because her face was covered, but she had a sign that said, don't get microchip, mark of the beast. Anybody else see her? It was like mid-afternoon, I was coming from somewhere. They're like, no, I was working, Blair. Um, I didn't see her. But she was standing out there and had this sign. <coughs> Nobody saw her? Okay, sermon over. No, just kidding. But uh, nobody saw her. But what was she warning people about? What was she warning people? The mark of the beast, have you heard of that? It's from Revelation uh, chapter 13, it gets brought up, and then again in 19. But was she right? Is there something? Was, or was she just crazy? I, I don't rightly know, but what it does illustrate for us is our fascination with the future and what the Bible has to say about that. We're curious about what is coming. And so we look to books, we read books like Revelation, and we want to know what all of that imagery means. We want to know what passages like this. We want to have an instruction in it to see what is ahead. And so isn't it interesting here as we get to the end of 1 Thessalonians that Paul includes some teaching on these future plans, right? It's a young church. They're very curious. Uh, They want to know what God's Word says. They're eager to learn. And so he includes this teaching. And what we'll find is he actually, while he was there and among them, he did teach on it as well. And so this is fitting for us. He's been giving building blocks, how to build a church to this young church. He started with all the foundational elements and then gave some structural support. And now he's talking about the future use. And so here, 1 Thessalonians 5, turn there if you haven't yet. And I want to read it for us. The first 11 verses. Listen here as I read. It says this, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, You have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Every woman said, amen. 
But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Amen, right? What a great passage of Scripture. What instructive passage of Scripture for us. You ready to unpack it? You ready to make some sense of these verses with, together? All right, let's do it. Well, here's our, here's our nail. Here's the big picture here. Building now for the future involves the following. Building now for the future involves four things that uh, is, are explained here in this text. And I want you to notice the pattern. Look at your Bibles with me. And I want you to see this pattern here. This is very instructive for us. And this will help you make sense of it. But notice that what verse 2 begins with. It begins with the word for. You can circle it if you want. Because you're going to see it again in verse 5. See the four there? And then in verse 7. And in verse 9. You see this four here? You see all the, like every couple verses, there's, there's this word four. And then in between them, look in, in verse four, then it begins with the word but. And then again in verse six, midway through it, but let us keep awake. And then again, verse eight begins with the word but. And then midway through verse nine, you see it again. Why do I point that out for you? One, because I want you, I want you to be good Bible students. I want you to learn to see these things and pick it up as you are reading through the scriptures. But what this does is it kind of forms a stair steps for us. Paul is, he has a very logical uh, 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 way of explaining what he's talking about here. And so he makes a statement, he's then contrasting it, and then based on that statement, he makes another thing. So you see his line of reasoning here? It's kind of walking us up some stairs, if you will, to our understanding. And so that frames then our message. That frames how we understand this. So stair number one, building now for the future involves awareness of Christ's coming judgment. And so as we live our life now, as we are here living as believers on this earth right now, but for the future, we first have to be aware of the times and the seasons. Look at verse one here times and seasons. He's saying concerning these things, he's, it's, he's expanding on the preceding verses. And so look at uh, chapter four, then just the paragraph right above it or beside it, depending upon how your Bible's broken down here. But he was talking about the Lord's return there, right? On the end times. He's saying now concerning these times and seasons, it's what the Bible used to talk about a future time, all right? Times and times, Daniel refers to it. And so it's not like the hour on your watch. It's not that we're in a, you know, winter currently and about to be spring, but he's, it's a, a, a way to speak of time in the future, of things that are coming. And look what he says to them. He says, you have no need for anything to be written. And so apparently, like I had referenced earlier, apparently as Paul was there in Thessalonica teaching them, he had done a, a, a 
apparently some considerable work to teach them about the end, about what was to come, probably using the Old Testament and the prophets and all that was taught about the end there. They didn't have any need to be taught anymore. They were sufficiently instructed for what they needed to know about what is to come right now. That makes sense? What is to come right now? But they were fully aware of this. You see it? They knew full well, he says, verse 2 there, of the imminence of the day of the Lord. You see this? He says, you yourselves, look at there, verse 2, he's going to make this claim. He says, for you yourselves are fully aware. You know all you need. It's not like you're being caught unaware. You're not surprised by this about the day of the Lord and its imminence or the fact that it could come at any moment. And so help me understand uh, yourself. When you, if I say, are you fully aware of the day of the Lord? Give me a thumb gauge here. Who's like, yeah, I know, I could give, the, when, I, when I say the day of the Lord, I can give you a coherent explanation. That's like, right here. Bottom is like, I've never heard that before. That is so foreign to me, and this is somewhere in between. So everybody, thumb gauge right here. I just want to see where are we at. Like, you know, you've heard this term. This is no. This is, yeah, I've heard it. I don't, maybe, no. We're all good? Okay, somewhere in between there. Um, some of you are like, I'm not participating. I don't raise my hand for anything. <laughs> That's okay. No judgment. But it does help me understand where we are and whether or not this is a familiar term for us. Because it defined, the day of the Lord refers to a day of future devastating destruction and wrath that the Lord will pour out upon the earth. That's what it refers to. It's a day. It's not necessarily speaking of one 24-hour period, but a, a time or a season of God's wrath and judgment and destruction. This phrase is found 19 times in the Old Testament, and four times in the New Testament, one of them here, one of them in 2 Thessalonians, one in 2 Peter, and one in Acts 2, referring actually to Joel 2 there. But we see it all across the scriptures. Sometimes it's referring to a partial fulfillment, a specific present fulfillment, like the times in the later Old Testament when Israel is taken captive. There's great destruction. So some of those uh, references in the Old Testament are to those things. But ultimately, it is foretelling a time of future unprecedented devastation that is yet to come. And so just, to, I want to take a time out here as we think about this, the day of the Lord, it's coming, it's imminent nature. There's lots of different understanding about the timing and the nature of these events. Some of you, maybe you've heard of like things of eschatology, right? And amillennial viewpoints or postmillennial viewpoints or premillennial viewpoints. And then within them, there's all different kinds of camps and understanding. But I want us to, outside of that, we're not going to get into all that stuff today. We can talk more about that small group this week. And uh, if you're just curious about it, we can talk more about it. But I want to give you two key ingredients to understanding end times things, to the starting place before you even get to the end. You ready for it? These two key ingredients are so, so important. The first one is your hermeneutics. You're like, your hermen what? Lots of big words today that we're going to unpack here. But it's your hermeneutics. It's the place where we have to begin. And so here's, we would be wrong to get all the way over here to talk about the end if we don't start at the beginning. And we have to, your hermeneutics is the filter in which you understand the scriptures. There are grammatical rules that you have to abide by in order to, uh, in order to understand the scripture, that you want to be consistent and logical as you read the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. You can't just like parachute into a book like Revelation 
and try to make sense of it without understanding all the things that came before and all the books that were written before that. Hermeneutics is the guide to that. Hermeneutics and the, your hermeneutical principles are like the parameters you might put into a GPS system. All right? I want to get to Austin, but I want to avoid traffic, and I want to avoid tolls. <laughs> GPS won't know which way to take you. <laughs> it might say take an airplane or something or hitchhike. Um, you can't get there without it. But there are those parameters that you might say, I want, to, I want to go through country. I want to avoid interstates if you're going on a road trip or something. And so they are those parameters, those specific things that you follow when you study God's word. And sometimes we don't even know what those things are. But as you grow, as you want to be a good student of God's word, here are a few things. So what we do, we take an approach that is literal, that is grammatical, and that is historical. That's kind of the overarching principles to our hermeneutics. We want to read God's word as a literal book, that these are real things that it's speaking of, taking into account the grammatical nature of it, the genres of literature. Do we read Psalms different than we might read the book of Matthew or the book of Revelation? We do, because there are different genres of literature. You read poetry different than you read your science textbook, different than you might read a biography written about somebody's life. And so there are different rules that you have about that, but it's also we take into account the historical context in which it was written, the audience that this book was written to. That's why we refer often to the people of Thessalonica, the context in which they lived in, and Paul was writing to them. And so the historical content, the original audience, and the author's intent. Why was he writing it? What purpose did he have for saying these things? Why was Paul writing these verses to these people there? What were they needed to be instructed in? And that in turn then instructs us. We can't just read our meaning into it. And so in understanding that, we also then un understand the unfolding nature of revelation, right? What uh, Abraham and Moses and those guys in the early books of the Bible, what they understood about God and about God's revelation and about even the coming Messiah or Jesus was different than what we know now, right? We have a more fuller picture because we have the benefit of looking back, right? They were here. God was revealing things, and so God gave them what they needed to know to walk in obedience and faith, to understand uh, God's character and all that stuff. But as these books are being written, they had a certain understanding. So we have to start there with our hermeneutics in order to get here to our end times understanding. Do you see that? Do you see where I'm going? I'm kind of like walking back and forth. You're like, where are you going? My head's spinning. You're talking about all these things. Are you with me a little bit? I know we're getting into uh, some of the weeds, but this is so under, uh, so foundational to our understanding. And so this key ingredient is we have to understand our hermeneutical approach in order to get over here. And so that's where we start. But second key ingredient is also humility, right? We want to seek understanding. Yes, we want to have firm convictions, but we want to be not like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots of Jesus' first coming that had all their charts, had all their understandings about who the Messiah would be, when Jesus would come, and all that he would come in this military splendor trying to overthrow the Roman occupation of that day. They had all these ideas that were contextualized to their current circumstances about how Jesus would come back. And Jesus did come back, and they all missed it, right? They all missed it. And so even though we seek understanding, we have, these, uh, we have uh, uh, convictions about this, we also need a heavy dose of humility as we talk about Christ's return. We want to stay tethered to the word 
and humble in heart, right? Got that? So now, as we start there, now we can get back to our text. But that is so important for us as we are aware, as we come to the understanding of what the day of the Lord will be like. We start there, but this, with these things in mind, now we come to it and we can say with confidence what these things are referring to. That here, as we put together the events from the previous section, and here we can say that the, the next monumental change in human history and of God's work in our life and the bigger redemption story is this event that's referred to in chapter 4 here, this catching up together, oftentimes referred to as the rapture, that that is the next thing that will come when both uh, believers that have died and us who might be alive at that time will be caught up together with the Lord in the air. That is the imminent thing. That is the next thing. There are no signs. There's nothing that needs to happen in history or in humanity for that to happen. But once it does, not long after that, this day of the Lord will be unleashed this devastation. Look here at verse 2 and 3 with me. That day will come like a thief in the night. That's unexpected. Do we want that to happen? No, but it may happen. It is the time of God's devastation and destruction. But look what marks it. Look what will be the common thing, the people, this, the, the world, what is, what is on uh, Fox News at that time, what every uh, diplomat is working to achieve. They are saying peace and security peace and security. And as soon as that is happening, it's all a farce because look what comes. Destruction. Destruction. We need to be aware of Christ's coming judgment and destruction that will come upon us like a thief in the night, but also labor pains that a pregnant woman does. Just when the guard is down to celebrate the peace and security, Devastation begins, and all of this progresses with increasing frequency and intensity, just like labor pains. Every woman who's been in labor knows that. They come quicker, and they get a lot harder, right? And that's why God then created epidurals and all those other things that uh, women use. These are the things that Revelation 6 to 19 describe, those unrelenting, terrible times that are increasing, that it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. They're coming. He says, he, he just lays it out here. But look at verse four. Look at this contrast. But what? Are we surprised that this is coming? No, none of us are now here, right? None of us. We're not surprised. We're not caught off guard anymore. Maybe you were when you came in. Maybe you gave the thumb down. I've never heard of the day of the Lord. I didn't know that a coming day of destruction is coming. Well, now you are aware. He's saying, you have heard these things, and so do not be caught off guard. Don't, you're not in the darkness for that day to surprise you. We know that it is coming. So if you're a believer, you won't be there to experience it anyways. But two, if you're still just like checking this Jesus stuff out and it happens, you've been told what's coming. You're sufficiently aware. You are fully aware now. Now you need to decide what to do with it. Our awareness building now for the future involves awareness of this coming judgment that is certain and terrible but we must then decide what to do with it. So look at verse five here. The next stair that we step up to, see the four there? The next stair, we must awaken to our status of where we stand with the Lord. It is so important to understand where you are in regard to these things. You must be woken up from it. It is crucial to know whether you are 
Look at verse 5. A child of light or the day or of the night slash darkness. And so here there's a metaphor that is being used to describe those who believe in Jesus and those who don't. So which is which? Well, your children of light, who are the children of light? The children of day, they're those who believe in Jesus. Those who are of the night and darkness are not. And so the question remains, who are you? Who are you? Are you adopted by the Father, a co-heir with Christ, a child of light? Are you enslaved to the father of lies, a resident of the domain of darkness, Paul would say, wandering in the night? Who are you? Are you awake to your status with the Lord? Are you sleeping through life? That's the gist here. That's what verse 5 is asking us. Saying you are children of light, those who believe, these Thessalonians who believe, who've put their faith in Christ. Those who have not are children of the night. This could be the most important question you answer in your entire life. Whose child are you? Because your future depends upon this response. The Bible would say, awake, O sleeper, and embrace Christ. We don't know all the details of the future, but we do know enough that we want the hope that chapter 4, verse 13 talks about, right? We want the encouragement that these things bring and not the destruction that we just heard about. So are you asleep or are you awake? And I don't mean because the sermon is boring. But where is your soul? What's your status with the Lord If you're awake and to the gospel of Jesus, then look at what verse 6 says. If that is you, if you are a child of the light, then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober or alert or attentive to how you are living your life. You know, the reality of the day of the Lord, the reality of the coming destruction is meant to shock us. It's meant to sober us like a bucket of ice water thrown on us while we're sleeping that suddenly brings us to attention, right? And when that happens, when, when that bucket of ice water happens, we're immediately alert. We, we take stock of our surroundings. We put our proper clothes on, and we're probably looking to retaliate, actually, in that moment too, right? But we're alert. We're sober. If you find yourself walking in the day, do not then act like a child of the dark. Do not be sleeping. If you're a child of the day, a child of the light, we're to be sober, alert, attentive to these things. Are you sober? Do you know who you are? We'll come to this next step. Look at verse seven then. Here you see it again. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who drunk are drunk at night. What happens at night in the dark? You either sleep or generally bad things, right? That's what happens after dark. Aaron and I, when we do uh, premarital counseling with like young couples or dating couples, we usually say nothing good happens after nine, right? <clears throat> After it gets dark at night, nothing really great happens when you're just dating, you're together, and you're alone, all those things. It doesn't, nothing good happens. But let's be clear here. Paul isn't just, uh, he's not just changing topics. He's not speaking directly about drinking. He's not saying that. The metaphor here is continuing. The metaphor is continuing. He's saying when you're asleep or you're inebriated, you're not at your best, are you? 
You're not at your best. Your senses are dulled. Your movements are impaired. Your thinking is clouded. And we're not at our best. Most of us maybe have an embarrassing story that we don't like to talk about while we are either asleep or inebriated. I have a story like that. Not about being inebriated. But about, uh, well, it's not really a story. It's more just a common thing that happens in our life, actually, because apparently I talk at night. I talk in my sleep a lot. That's my wife. And she actually really tries to record me at night while I'm talking in my sleep. All these uh, unintelligible things, I don't know. I'll waken her up. And so I'm not at my best. I'm not alert. I'm aloof. My senses are dulled. And this has apparently been something in my entire life as I was a kid. I did this in college. I did this. I've always talked in my sleep sleep. But that's not what we're to be like in our faith. As we live out our faith, we are to armor ourselves. We're to armor ourselves and to put on these things that uh, verse 8 talks about it. Our senses, rather, are to be alert. Our movements are to be poised and agile, our thinking sharp and our speech deliberate. Knowing the end means that we put on the armor now as protection. And so this is a common uh, illustration, right? You, you see verse 8 there, he talks about the breastplate of faith. We belong to the day, so let us be sober or alert or attentive, uh, self-controlled, self-disciplined. So what's, what's in, captured there in that word sober? And he says, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Are you familiar with the armor of God passages, right? Um, uh, Isaiah 59 and where else in the New Testament? Ephesians 6, yeah. And so it talks about this. It's a common metaphor that is used for how we live our life. And so here the breastplate speaks of what protects our internal organs, right? Our vital organs. And so this faith in Christ that saves us and sanctifies us, it keeps us from sin, right? When our faith is in Christ in the right way, that protects us. It protects our heart. The love for Christ is what secures us. Knowing this, that God loves us and our love for him in return is what protects our vital organs. It, it is that protection, uh, metaphorically speaking, as we walk through this life, as we are alert and attentive to how we are living our lives now in light of the future. The helmet then protects our what? Protects our melon, right? Our head, our mind, our brain, this thing right here. That hope of salvation he talks about, the helmet, putting on this, the hope of our salvation. It's future-oriented, right? Our mind is stayed on Christ. And when that happens, when our mind is on Christ, like Colossians 3 says, that we set our minds on things above, right? Not on things that are on the earth. When our mind is on Christ, we don't stray into sin. We, we set our minds up there. And so we must be sober. We must be sober and alert to how we are living our life and what we are putting into our mind, what we are putting into our body. Our head protects that. And so here's, here's the reality. What we feed our mind has a profound effect. What we put into our bodies affects how we worship Christ, how we walk with Christ, how we work for Christ, and ultimately how we wait for his return. These things have a great effect. So we have to be careful. We have to be alert and sober to how we are living our life and what we are exposing ourselves to as we think about that great and coming day of the Lord. Maybe it's time that we have to change some of our habits. We need to armor ourselves. We need to be more sober and disciplined in how we live our life, being aware of Christ's coming, 
being awakened to how we stand with him and what we are doing in our lives. Here's the final stare. Look at verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath. We need to anticipate our destiny. Building now for the future involves anticipating with great joy where we are headed to and ultimately where we are not headed to. We don't have to fear the wrath that is being spoken of when we read these day of the Lord passages. We're not, we are not in fear. We are not gripped by these things. Rather, we are anticipating the salvation that is yet to come. Look, we're not destined for that. God has not done that. For those who are in the light, those who are children of the light, are not destined to experience the wrath of God. Sure, will we sit at the Bama seat? Will, we, uh, will there be rewards for what we did? And, and will we not have rewards for everything that was not of the Lord be burned up? Yes, but there's no condemnation. We don't live in fear of these events or the wrath of God. Rather, our hope, our anticipation is to obtain that salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that a great phrase? That we would obtain this salvation through Jesus? Did we win our salvation? Can you do enough great things from now till the end of your life that you would be able to obtain the salvation and the glory that is spoken of in the scriptures? You can't. Our only way to obtain that is through whom? Christ. And what he did on our behalf. He was the substitute for us. He was the one that lived the perfect life to please the Father and then died on our behalf that we might have the benefit of that. That's what we anticipate with great joy, this future aspect of our salvation. And so when we say we are saved, there's, there's three aspects to it, right? Our past salvation, that moment when we were justified, when we were regenerate, when we were born again, that point in the past that we look forward to. There's a, a present aspect that we are being saved right now, right? Our sanctification, what we saw a few weeks ago in chapter 4. This is God's will for you, your sanctification, that very fact that we are being saved, that we are becoming like we are in our life, saying no to sin and yes to right living following Christ. But this future sense of glorification that we will be saved. The hope that we have, the hope of salvation, that all these things, that we bank on the reality and the certainty of what Christ did in the past. We live in light of that now with a great hope for a glorious future. Amen? That's what our hope is. That's what we are destined for. That is what we look forward to, that we will obtain this And look at verse 10, how he expands it. He says, who died for us? Underline that, circle those two words, for us. For us. There's a profound difference in this. This is what we embrace by faith. You've heard the facts of the gospel. There's a big difference between saying Jesus died for sin, and Jesus died for my sin. See the difference there? To see the personal uh, aspect, the personal embracing of this great and glorious truth? And not just, yeah, Jesus died, he did that, yeah, I believe that, yes, I agree, that was a historical event. But when we say he did that for me, for us, for the children of God, that's true saving faith. 
that's when it goes from just knowing the facts about Jesus to saving faith in Jesus. And the difference is eternal. Our salvation, it's been won, right? Christ won it. It's secure apart from our efforts. That's what he says. So whether we're awake or asleep, this is secure apart from our efforts. And we will live with him in a child of light. And so we anticipate this with great joy, don't we? We anticipate. We've just sung about it. Every song that we just sang had at least one verse or some reference to that hope that we look forward to, that when our eyes are fixed on Christ, that great joy. And so I just ask this question here. In, within this scale, where are you on your anticipation of heaven? Where are you on this anticipation of heaven? Are you ignorant to it, that you don't think about it at all? Or are you obsessed about it and it's all you think about and you're paralyzed and you don't work and you, and you need the admonishment that he had earlier in chapter four to, hey, get to work, start living and loving. Or are you vertical? You see the difference here? We don't want to be ignorant to it, but we also don't want to be paralyzed and obsessed with all the details and God's come. He's going to come. The day of the Lord is coming in 2049. I just know it. I've, I've calculated it all out. I've put the scriptures together. I've got all these charts to explain it. I'm just, I've, I'm frantic about it. I want everybody to know. I'm going to go hold a big sign up about it because I want people to know this. I'm obsessed with it. Or it's just, well, I've never really thought about it. I don't want it here. But we anticipate it. This is what we mean by living vertically. Most things in life we could put somewhere on this continuum, but our hope, we don't want to be these extremes over here. We want to be vertical. We want to anticipate with great joy living our life, building now, telling as many people as we can about it, studying the scriptures, living this godly life here, awake to the reality of these things, being evangelistic, being excellent, how we live our life, loving our wives, loving our kids. We want to do those things with great hope and anticipation of our future destiny of where God has called us to. What a great day that'll be. Are you still with me? You still with me? You still in God's word? So let's, let's just summarize this. We've, we've covered a lot of ground today. Who feels like maybe they've been in like Sistheo class this morning? Yeah, a little bit. It's, it's been some big stuff, but we have to talk about it. It's good stuff. This is what fortifies our faith. This is the truth of God's word. So let's summarize. What do we know for sure? What do we know for sure from these passages here, this one today, last week here, from these things? What do we know for sure? Jesus is coming back. Amen? Amen. Jesus is coming back. That's our great hope. That is what we look forward to. And it is an imminent return. Could happen at any point where we are caught up with him and it will be a public event. That what we look forward to, what we sang it in the various songs, where we look forward to that voice, that shout of command, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. It'll be a public glorious event and Jesus is coming back. We know that for sure. Everything that Jesus has promised that he has done has come to pass in the past and those things that are yet to be fulfilled will happen for sure. We know that. Second, we know that believers are going with him. Are you found in Christ today? Are you a children of the light of the day? And you're going with him. You've been destined for salvation. If we're dead, if, if the Lord tarries and we die, don't worry, you get to go first. Number three, we know that devastation will be unleashed on the earth. We know this for sure. The scriptures talk about it time and time again, not just in this passage. This is an indicator here. He's right into these people that would then take their mind back to the 19 times that this is used in the Old Testament, this phrase specifically. It's also referred to as the day of vengeance, the day of God, other, other ways. But we know that devastation will be unleashed on the earth with increasing frequency and intensities. 
And last, what we know for sure is that believers must live alert in the meantime. We must be sober. We can't just kind of slough off through life. It can't be like, yeah, I've been saved. I look forward to heaven. Woo, the rest of my time on earth is a party. No, we live for the Lord, alert and sober with discipline and encouraging others. That's what we know for sure. That's the summary. You got lost in all the theological weeds. Here we are, what you can take home and bank your life upon. So what do we do from here? What do we do from here? We got one more verse. Blair, you said we're going to verse 11 and you didn't cover it. So here we are. And then we'll wrap up with this. Look what it, what it ends with, that therefore. You see that there? Don't overlook the importance of therefores. Here's a little phrase. I'm going to put it in your mind, and every time you read the Bible, it's going to come up to you, and it's going to annoy the, uh, the, the tar out of you. But circle therefore. But whenever you see therefore in the Bible, you need to say, what's therefore, therefore? Because it connects us to something, right? He's just laid out this great teaching. And then the, as a good writer, you say, now therefore live this way or do this or this is true. And so as you are studying God's word, you ask, what is therefore? Therefore, what do we do with all this information? What do we do with the fact that we are building now for the future, aware of his coming, um, awakening to our status, armoring ourselves and anticipating with great joy? What do we do? Where do we go from here? Are we to be anxious? Or do we be speculative? Are we to live in fear of these things? Is it to make us crazy? How many of you guys have studied end times? That's kind of what it does. It's like, I get really anxious. I don't want to study about it because I just like, I don't know what to do with it. It's not what the Bible t- teaches on these things. As a matter of fact, as you look through the different snippets of the New Testament where it talks about these passages, it is most often followed by a therefore. We've seen two of them here. Therefore, what are we to do? Get worked up? Fear? Look at it. What does it say? Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. It's the second time we saw that last week, right? Look at the end of chapter 4, verse 18. Therefore, what? Encourage one another. A passage about the end, we're meant to encourage one another. This is repeated for us, and whenever something in the Bible is repeated, that should set off lights. This is important. What does it mean to encourage? Specifically in this context, it means to console, to come alongside, to put courage into, especially those who are hurting and grieving. This is meant to encourage us as we think about the end. It gives us great courage of how to live our life now that this death or this trial doesn't have the final say in your life. What God is doing in your life has the final say. And the hope that we have of God making everything right, that has the final say. And that is good for our soul. It's good for our soul. And so as we care for one another, as we are in life together, that's why it says one another. We encourage one another. It puts courage in our hearts, but these are the things that we encourage one another with as we engage in biblical soul care. As we care for one another mutually in small groups, through our friendships, our time together, we encourage one another. And we build up, we make stronger, we fortify each other. That's what the truth does. That's what we need in times like this. We need the truth. We build up. It makes us strong together. So we think about it. We're building what lasts. We're building into one another. We're building a body of believers now for the future. It's built through the truth and the hope of Jesus Christ. When someone's in the hospital, what do we do? We text bomb them encouragement, 
right? When someone's grieving, we food bomb their refrigerator. We encourage, we build up, we put strength in their bones. When someone's in a pickle, we give what they need to, get, to give them a boost to get them out. Look at how it ends, just as you are doing. Good job in it, even this week, church, doing this among one another. This is what we do from here. We encourage, we build up, we don't get anxious, but we, when we think about the end, but strengthen our bones as we look forward to that glorious day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.